0: I assume you don't take accusations of indecency and immorality very seriously.
1: Yeah, we take them seriously if we get enough of them. Uh, like we took that finger thing very seriously. If, uh, I took it seriously enough to, uh, to personally apologize. The second time we did it was when we got involved with that dreadful film of the Academy. <laughs> <laughs> we noticed the uh, uh, statue. First, first we took out a letter page and did our own two-page... Uh, lampoon and you know warning everybody not to see it
0: <laughs> and i
1: i personally wrote letters uh, to everybody that wrote in and i say personally i mean by hand uh you know apologizing and explaining what happened and uh, agreeing that it was uh, everything as bad as they said it was which it was and uh, you know you goof I mean, what's the while you goof and i was certainly two of the goofs you know, that movie and that finger. <laughs> To what extent were Matt Staffers involved with the movie? No extent at all. No? Uh, what happened is we have a contract with Warner Brothers to put out a bad movie. <laughs> it's like four years old. Now. Uh, they came up with a script that we didn't like, and then they came up with a script using our script writers that they didn't like. But meanwhile, they threw the script on our desk, and we all read the script. It was uh, It was called, I think, the... I don't know, of Weinberg, it was the Weinberg military event. And although there were many things in it that I thought were offensive and should be removed, generally I liked the script. I thought it had, and I thought, well, in addition to a mad movie, there's nothing wrong with having something like Lampoon did with Animal House. Animal House was Lampoon Presents, and Animal House really had nothing to do with the magazine. This was using their name. And it was a good movie, and it was very successful, and it made Lampoon a lot of money. I guess. So you were going to do the same thing. Mad Magazine. Of course, I wanted to, you know, Hollywood, they don't have the nerve. I want to say, Mad Magazine completely disassociates itself from, up the Academy. But that was too long for them. They can't think that many words. <laughs> um, they put the damn thing out without all all the deletions they had promised me to make. They didn't, which means they're liars. They... Uh, I'm talking about one of my sister companies. <laughs> I mean, man is owned by Warner, and the Warner Brothers is owned by Warner. But these people are a bunch of liars out there. Uh, it's the industry. It is the industry, I guess. Yeah. Uh, they put some coked-up guy, literally coked-up guy... He was on drugs. was on drugs with the director of this thing. Uh, he he used to do some interesting work. I think he did Puckney Swope. Hmm. But by the time he got to this picture, boy... He he was gone, and uh, the, the result was a dreadful, very bad taste movie. I mean, it was badly done, and it was it was dirty, and it was boring, and uh, it was just a horrible thing. And there we were connected with it. You know, and there wasn't much we could do about it. I paid Warner Brothers thirty grand to take Mad's name off for television. So for thirty thousand dollars, we got out of being. It's no it. If you see it on the home box or something like that, and it's coming up on home box this month, it won't say Mad 19%, and Alfred E. Newman won't be in it, and it was well worth $30,000. <laughs> but, you know, these things happen. The man and staff had nothing to do with it, except we all liked the script as it was originally. This is a, fu- a funny picture. The star didn't, you'll, you won't find Ron Liebman's name anywhere in the credits, and he's the star. That's right. Yeah. The writers, when they saw it, almost died because we called them and talked to them, commiserating with each other. We didn't want to be associated with it. I think the director didn't want to be associated with it. I mean, have... <laughs> a disaster. And yeah, the real Mad Movie still has made. No. Well, this left such a bad taste in everybody's minds that they probably never will make the real Mad Movie, which is the real catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Back to this. Uh,
0: the all-backnesia, is it? Mm-hmm. Again, to the uh, the whole cure of our accounts. Does everybody know about the
2: camaraderie in the office, the the anecdotes,
1: the joy? Well, you know, we always had a kind of family atmosphere here, uh, and and we still do, except it's a different family. I think about the only people left from the old days are Feldstein and Davis. Almost everyone else has changed. Uh, But we had, you know, it was a big family then, and it's a big family now. In a sense, now more than then, because of all the trips we've taken, uh, everybody that uh, normally might never have seen each other. You know, it was amazing when I f- announced the first trip in 1960 to Haiti. I got everybody in the office, you know, they didn't know what was happening. They probably thought I was going to tell them they were out of business. And I announced this big trip to Haiti, but before I did that, I introduced everybody, because they didn't know each other. Amazing how many times two guys can come to the office and never bump into each other, because they come at different times. So now, of course, everybody knows everybody. It's led to a lot of interesting collaborations, and it's very, very pleasant. Uh, back in the other days, everybody knew everybody, because we were a smaller group. Uh, but they had tremendous admiration for one another. Wally Wood would come in with a story, and, you know, three artists would crowd around him and faint, just pouring over every brushstroke and every panel. And of course, you know, the guy who's getting this adulation sits there and loves it. Next time around, it's his turn to adulate somebody else. Somebody else comes in. Williamson comes in with a story, and Wally Wood faints, you know, that kind of thing. And everybody tried to outdo each other, which is one of the reasons we got such incredible good art. They were all in a friendly competition to see who could make everybody faint more than the other guy. And uh, it was wonderful. It was a nice, warm place.
2: Uh, from what i heard from the old days in the industry, there weren't any other companies like this.
1: I don't think the world. I wouldn't know. I, I was always kind of an isolationist. I don't know anybody else. I never knew anybody else in the industry. I didn't know the DC either, because, uh, you know, they, they, we were pretty low-class stuff to DC in those days, and uh, they didn't want to know us. So I really didn't know anybody else. Yeah,
2: the, the comic books are... Your comic books are different everybody else's, too. If You seem to DC took your comic books much more seriously as... In terms
1: of quality, well, we did, uh, and one of the reasons is every story was every story was custom made for the artist. Al and I would sit down, and the first thing we would say, because I kept the schedule, is I would say, "Today we're writing a an eight page lead for Engels for Honor Fear and the so As soon as I say that, both our minds are in a certain frame of. Uh, Reference for Ingalls. It's not going to be a Jack Cayman story, which is a whole different can of worms. Cayman, you're looking for something light, humorous, pretty women, little sex, little double, double entendre. With Ingalls, you know what we're looking for. Yucks, <laughs> <Yep. laughs> really? rotting corpses, you know, <laughs> and moors, you know, like this. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we knew exactly who we were writing for. It makes a hell of a lot of difference than up at DC where they probably, largely, have script writers turning out for they don't know who, and they got a million things. You take one from Shadow, you know, one from Column A and two from Column B, and you got a book. Um, I'm sure that isn't true of all the stuff anywhere, but uh, it's got to be true when you have 30 comic books. Uh, there's got to be a lot of that. Who else can not handle it? We never had more than five books of month. That was absolutely top. Almost all our books were bi-monthly, so they would come out six times a year, and we would have ten titles coming out five a month. So it was relatively easy to do what we did. It was depressing when we came out with three successful horror books to see Marvel come out with 30, uh, you know, because now they've got ten-elevenths of the marketplace, and that doesn't include the 16 from this one and the 12 from this one and so on. But we had to live with it because we're not going to put out 30 horror books. We couldn't. How the hell are we going to get stories and artists for 30 horror books? So we stuck to three. We never had more. Might
0: be hard for readers today to conceive of how many comic books were being published then. There were literally hundreds of titles.
1: Hundreds. There were seven to eight hundred titles. Seven to eight hundred titles. It was the heyday of comics and, and they, the minimum print, the minimum print was three hundred thousand. Uh, it wasn't economically feasible at a dime to put out less than $300,000. I mean, the nuts you had to get over of your your business costs, your, your office space, which is divvied up by how many times you put out. Plus, of course, what it costs to put out a, an issue. 32 pages of this, 32 pages of art, covers and everything else. You add it all up, plus the make-ready on the press. This is a technical thing, but comic presses are different than offset presses. It costs so much money just to get ready to roll that you've got to print a decent number or it isn't worth it.
0: Uh, You'd be surprised at the minimum required now. Well, I know that the
1: DC's down. I think they have the know prints down 150. The minimum to the print is 50,000. 50, oh, 50,000? I don't know how they do it. Now, I know uh, that some of this DC reprint stuff, the, those boys were printing out 20,000. They were charging a buck. I'm talking about when they charge you know... What other comics charge, which in those days was a dime and today is about 60 cents. I don't know how they do it on a run of 50000 I really don't know how they do it. Unless there's some new technology that I don't know about, which is quite possible. Yeah,
0: well, 75 cents and a dollar, it's easier.
1: Yeah, but you know, a dollar today is that much different than a dime 30, 40 years ago, so right I don't know.
0: The one thing that was, so, that was so startling about EC was that in the 40s and 50s, I mean, it was really a hack period for comics, but... Uh, in EC's, you really had a kind of unselfish, uh, un- unselfconscious unself-conscious, uh, sense of quality and conscientiousness.
1: So, uh. Well, about halfway through it, we suddenly realized that we were good. Up to that point, we didn't know. You know, we're just bobbing along, trying to make a buck and, uh, trying to keep alive and trying to keep. It became, you know, since I wanted all my artists to work for EC exclusively, I had an obligation to be busy. That's why Al and I had to work so hard. In all that time, with maybe, you know, occasional acceptance or some exception uh, or some accidental tragedy or something, uh, an artist would walk in and there would be a letter job waiting for him. I mean, this was the rule. An artist knew that when he came in with his job, there's a job waiting for him, all lettered, ready to go. And there always was. But that was the way we did it. He also got paid the moment he walked in. To so this day, you know, I was up there briefly, you know, helping Carmine and Virginia in D.C., mm-hmm. It didn't work out because, uh, they let Carmine go, and after Carmine went, I was, I was not particularly interested in staying, and the new people were not particularly interested in having me stay. Uh, the first meeting I had with them, I said, look, I'm a consultant, I speak when I'm spoken to, and they never spoke to me. <laughs> so that was that. <laughs> but when I was up there with Carmine, I realized what a different operation DC was. Uh, the first thing I said is, why, why are the artists waiting six weeks to get paid? Why don't we pay them when they come in? Parman says, yeah, well, Carmine's an artist. He says, yeah, that's a good idea. I said, geez, we always did that at EC. I do it in MAD. The artist walks in with a job, he gets a check. So we, we told the people up there, you know, from now on we go, well, you can't believe the screaming and yelling. We can't do that. Can you imagine how much work we've got to go through to stop what we're doing and write a check? And we only write checks once a week up here. And this is for real. There was no way to break through this this monolithic whatever and get these guys to write a check the day an artist came in. Literally couldn't do it. I gave up. It's weird, really weird.
0: You managed uh, a major corporation.
1: It's a whole different way of life, and there were all kind of things like that that I wanted to do there that I couldn't, and I realized the only way to do it is to fire everybody and start building up again. Well, who can do that either? <laughs> So, you know, you're stuck with the, with the mores of the company that have been in 30 years of the making, and you know, you're kind of just walk well, you in know, and change it. And, uh, you know, to this day, I don't believe for an instant that they couldn't have written a check every day, but just, they didn't want to be bothered. And this, this, this big 20, 20 person place that writes checks, I mean, how the hell and you know, they, they keep books and write checks and do whatever the hell they do, and they do not want to be bothered, so they put up this big stink. So, okay. But we still pay <laughs> the moment an artist walks in, he works out with a show. How uh, reliable were the Well, each one was different. Graham Engels was an alcoholic. Graham Engels would as soon get drunk as not get drunk, but you know, in all the times he was drunk and in God knows, God knows where he was, he never lost a job. And he rarely was late. Don't ask me how he did. Uh, Johnny Craig, <laughs> maybe every five weeks, four weeks, he would come in with his job. But I expected him. Uh Jack Davis, we used to draw pictures of Jack with a machine that turns out on him. Uh Jack, you give us seven pages back in three days. Uh, unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Most of the guys were quite reliable. Most of the guys, we got to know how long each one would take. And we paced it accordingly. Most of the boys, like Joe Orlando, Wally wood were two weeks for a story. Graham was two, two and a half, three weeks. And Jack, as I said, was very fast. Johnny was very slow. They were extremes. Most of the other guys were about two weeks. But we didn't, oh, Williamson. Williamson was a screwball in those days. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I understand he's steady down. He's, he's doing a syndicated strip, which requires a reasonable amount of discipline. But in those days, he was a screwball and very immature, sweet and lovable in one form. I loved him very much, but he would be frequently really late. Uh, but again, if you knew he was going to be late, you lied. <laughs> you lied about the due date. You know,
0: uh, I guess you know today they have the uh, the comics system down into a kind of uh, factory conveyor belt system where they have a penciler, an inker, a writer, a letter, and so on. All of the EC artists ink their own material.
1: Yes. Did but ever, they had that system back then, too. In the shop, the big, the big outfits, you're right, I forgot, we just never did it. The big outfits had pencilers, and they had inkers, and these people were special. Some of them penciled better, some of them inked better, and there was nothing too much wrong with it, except that uh, we tried it for a little while, and you, if you look very closely, you'll see some stuff called Al John. That was Al penciling and Johnny craving, and we did it for a few stories, just for fun. It didn't work out.
0: What prompted you to go against current practice? By letting the artist pencil and ink and do everything himself? Probably ignorance. <laughs> I don't
1: think I know any better, you know. But our artists, none of them wanted to be. You know, they were all very proud of their work. Who wants somebody else ink in their work? You know, Severn and Seven Elder was the exception. They were always a team. They came to me as a team. Uh, and uh, what one had the other lacked and vice versa, perhaps. Elder did some work for us alone particularly in the horror, because several probably didn't want to. Uh, but for the most part, the science fiction, they, they worked as a team. It's beautiful. Right? Yeah, and the war books. And the war books. Uh,
0: I know that you uh, think very highly of the uh, science fiction books. You're very proud of them. But I haven't heard you talk much about the war books.
1: Oh, very proud of them, too. But I didn't do them. Uh, so there's not much to talk about. Right. Harvey and I just had... Completely different interests in, in this kind of thing. And I did with Feldstein what I wanted. And uh, Feldstein was very good natured. Whatever I wanted, he wanted. Uh, he liked this stuff. He, Al can really do anything, almost anything. Uh, the one thing he can't do is what person did. We tried once. We wrote one story. <laughs> I think it's called Hong Kong and Three. In the first issue of Two Fisted of Tales, which is the worst piece of crap you've ever seen, it's worse than our loved ones. <laughs> yeah. uh, because we just don't, either one of us had a feel for that kind of stuff, we didn't know what the hell Harvey was talking about, and I still really don't, I couldn't do what Harvey did. Uh, one gets the impression that working
0: with Harvey, Harvey was very idiosyncratic more difficult to
1: work with. Yeah, but that wasn't the point here. The point here was that Harvey had a great feel for adventure. Harvey liked... There used to be a radio program called I Love it, I Love a Mystery, which was really an adventure program. I don't know if you're acquainted with it. It was adventure. Carlton uh, Boss wrote it, and uh, he was terrific. He also wrote a bunch of other crap, a lot of soap operas. This was a really unique thing he did, and it was just pure adventure, giant spiders in Afghanistan, and all kinds of crap. These guys were always getting into these action problems and out of them, and that wasn't our genre at all. We we were into you know we were into horror and creepiness and science fiction and fantasy and stuff like that. And uh, although Harvey could do what we did a little bit, we could do what he. Did. And so there was no reading of the minds at all between his books and ours. Oh, why was Leroy Lettering used
2: so much in, in the book's name? He you knows there's a change of tenor in the question, but I've
1: always been puzzled by this. Well, uh, I kind of inherited the outfit. My father, when he did Wonder Woman, and I have no idea why, used Leroy Lettering. The old, I don't know if they still do, but the old Wonder Womans, if you ever look at them, they were Leroy Lettering. And they were Leroy-lettered by a guy by the name of Jimmy Roten, who started out a salesman for Purple and who were the people who made, among other things, my slide rule. <laughs> and uh, they were the big company for slide rules, for uh, templates, for the uh, Leroy. And Leroy-lettering mostly was used for, for lettering charts, engineering charts, and so on, which is beautiful for them. How the hell it got involved in comics, I don't know, but... It suited us very well, because Al was a script-oriented person, although he's an artist, and a pretty good one. Uh, He was, when when he started writing, he was more interested in the script than the art. I think Persman was more interested in the art than the script, so uh, that was one of the differences between them. And, uh, what were we talking about? What was the question? Oh. so so uh, because Al had so many words, uh, we found we could do it more clearly with Leroy lettering. If we had wanted a hand letterer to work that small to get all that copy in, it would have been very difficult for him. You'll notice Kurtzman's stuff is very like copy, and he never liked Leroy lettering. He wanted the feel of the hand letterer, so we had Ben Oda find Japanese uh, hand letterer who uh, still works for D.C. and still occasionally does something gross, I uh, and that, that's why. I see.
2: It. It's it been said by some people that the literary lettering kind of gave the horror books and even science fiction books a rather strange, inhuman look well, okay. it was
1: so mechanical. Perhaps it did, but that was not why we used it. We used it because it was there. <laughs> I mean, I just, I mean, like I say, I just kind of inherited it when, when I got down there. My father was using it, I think, on everything or almost everything.
0: Were there any, ever any moments when you thought, uh, or Al thought, that the books were too text-heavy? That uh, a major criticism against the books these days is that they're too text-heavy, and the medium is primarily visual.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's what I'm talking about. They were very text-heavy, and that's because Al Al, and I both got enamored with his words. Uh, he wrote so beautifully. Did,
0: Did artists you? ever complain? Did it oh, have space? sure, <laughs> you've seen all those
1: things. That's, uh uh other I remember think, the Graham Wriggles uh thing where he's holding up the balloon, there's a little tiny space he's got to work in. Yeah, sure they complain. Uh but we, did we
0: just have the, a sympathetic hearing? Not, not a bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and of course then there's the uh, the well known time that Kriegstein was presented with master Race at six pages, and he was outraged that he cut the whole goddamn thing to pieces without asking us. And pasted it all back together into an eight pager and, and brought it in that way. And of course, it was a masterpiece, and it presented us with a hell of a problem because, you know, we laid our books out for an 8767 seven format, and here we all of a sudden have an 8787 eight, seven format. we are we going to get two more pages? And I don't know what we did. I guess we switched some stories around with other books. Uh, well, Christie
0: was an interesting case. He seemed to be the most rebellious
1: of the artists. Very rebellious, and a, and a very fine artist who really. Uh, I suppose shouldn't have been in comics, and I, I'm sure he isn't anymore. Uh, one of the things he did, which is my very favorite, was that Bradbury story uh, about the Chinese, uh, the opium story, yeah, I forget the name. And the other one was the one about the flying machine. Yeah. Well, those were both magnificent stories. But Master Race was probably his greatest, and he did it himself. He just, just refused to do it in the space we gave him.
0: All right. What was Christine like? Uh, he seems like uh, kind of a strong-willed, serious artist. Yeah.
1: Strong-willed, serious, a uh, little bit cranky. Basically nice, but uh, very cranky, least he was. That I haven't seen him in so many years. In a way, it
0: seems like the artists had a tough time here. If they, they didn't want the text-heavy uh, stories, they'd have to go to Harvey to uh, lay out all the pages for them. Well, they didn't go to Harvey. Harvey would go to that. Harvey
1: would only use the artists he wanted to use, which is right. not a lot of the artists that were doing other things. Right. For example, he'd use Wood, and he used use Davis, but he wouldn't use Orlando, and he wouldn't use Cayman. Uh I don't think he would use Crandall. He, did, at he didn't. At least once. Well, he had, but you See, if Harvey used somebody once and never again, that right. means he didn't like whatever he got. You mentioned That's an Ingalls work story. <laughs> well... I could think one up, but Harvey wouldn't like it. Oh, here's
2: the question I'm going to have to ask for the readers who definitely want some sort
1: of answer. What happened to Graham Engels? Well, Graham Engels, I I don't know quite how to put this because uh, what I'm saying uh, would be part speculation, so I won't say what I was going to say. Let's just say that that Graham Engels was not happy with his home situation, and so he ran away from home and disappeared, so that his family could not find him, I I guess it's reasonable to assume that he really was running away from his wife more than his children uh, and as a matter of fact uh, I think that I've heard that his daughter has made contact with him, they do see or talk to each uh, other but he went to Florida, and he's in Florida, and I don't know exactly where he is in Florida and if I knew I wouldn't say, because he doesn't want to be found but I can contact him through a third party, a lawyer, I guess. And I do every year because I still send the boys money from, you know, the on stuff and the sale of artwork and whatever else we do from the ODC stuff. And I share this with all the uh, old artists. The first time I did this, which was, well, for many years I sent the money to his wife because I didn't know where he was. And then I found out where he was. And so I started sending the money to him. But first I had to contact him and I got him on the telephone he called me, because I wouldn't know where to get him. And he said he didn't want the money. He said he was ashamed of what he did, and it was dirty money, and he didn't want it. I'll paraphrase what He said, roughly right So I said, Graham, you're going to crap up my books. <laughs> you don't take the money. What am I going to do with it, you know? And he said, well, I just don't want it. And I said, why don't you take it and give it to Jerry? I said, then, you know, you'll be taking it. You'll solve me the problem of what to do with it. And uh, and still, you won't be dirtying your hands with it, and uh, you'll be doing some good. He says, oh, fine, that's a good idea. And so I have sent him uh, sometimes quite a large amount of money, uh, money, for uh, the last six, seven, eight, nine years, whatever it's been. And he takes it, because I know his signature, and that's what comes back on the check. i just to really make sure that this lawyer isn't getting it. And, uh, and he's taking it. Now, what he's doing with it, I don't know. I presume he's giving it away. But I don't care. I hope he isn't to think that he was spending it on something and enjoying it. And that's the uh, Graham Engle story. He's down there. He apparently is not always down there. Sometimes he goes to New England for the summer. I don't know where. Uh, But, you know, around Christmas time, I can always find him. He feels badly about what he did. He feels badly. He feels ashamed. He doesn't want any money from it. He's very happy. He's painting portraits. He's teaching art, uh, he says. And uh, that's what he's doing. Did you ever try to convince him otherwise that what he did wasn't terrible? Uh, oh, well? I I tell him that uh, you know that he's revered and held uh, in highest esteem by everybody. And he, he accepts this and he seems to understand it, but he thinks everybody that feels that way about him is out of their head. Uh, <laughs> Russ wanted to send him uh, one of these, and he decided he would accept shock suspense story because he isn't in it. So Russ sent him a set of facts suspense stories, and maybe uh, maybe a two-fist of although I don't know. But he didn't want the horribles. That's that. So he's the only one from the old days that feels like that. It. it feels natural about it. Everybody else was, whatever they may have felt about it, they we weren't turning down the money. <laughs> right. uh, now when Creepshow came along, the movie, and the guy who was producing it or writing us, is that King uh, uh, he called us one day, and he was trying to find Angles, and I said, he won't want to do any work for you, but just to make sure, I'll write him a letter and ask him. So I wrote him a letter and asked him, of course, he came back and said, don't want this one. So they got Cayman to do a uh, movie poster, and I don't know, I'm not quite sure what they're doing, I think they're putting out a horror comic to go with the
0: movie. Yeah, they got Bernie Wrightson to do that. Yeah. Today's Kamin, uh, or Angles. Um you have anything else leading up to...
2: Uh, well, we could talk uh, lean into it by talking about the market at the time. But I understand that you were uh, feeling at the time that horror was just a passing thing of two, three, four years, and then it'd
1: go on to something else. I don't remember. Well, let's put it this way. I was always surprised when anything lasted more than a couple of years just because I was a born pessimist. And no matter what I was doing, I was sure that, you know, it couldn't last. But I, I didn't think that horror... I didn't, I didn't think that there was any reason that horror was going to go away. I just thought that my books would eventually fail because I couldn't conceive that they wouldn't. Uh, for years, I thought man was going to fail. You I've got to spend 30 years, so that's a pretty long run. Uh I don't know. If I ever said that, I don't know why I said it, because I don't recall thinking.
2: But the, but certainly the market at the time was heavily in the horror.
1: Uh, you started Oh, yeah, we started horror. And we started what we called uh, real science fiction as opposed to cowboys and Indians and spaceship science fiction, like Buck Rogers. And uh, uh, and th- and there were many, many, many uh, competitive books. But I, you know, I didn't think... The horror books made money right to the very end. Even after I made the decision to drop them, uh, it wasn't because they weren't making money. Despite all the incredible problems and the wholesalers hating us and nobody wants to handle their... But somehow they got out and they sold. And they never lost money. Not ever once did they lose money. So I don't know why I would have thought that they were going to stop. I just thought it would be a problem, and a censorship problem,
2: right? Uh, when people talk about the 50s now, comic books, the problems, Dr. Wortham, the Senate subcommittee uh, hearings and so on, uh, somehow the name Joseph McCarthy always gets brought in by association if nothing else. Uh, do you think that the, uh, the, claims the criticism the attacks on comic books was in any way political.
1: No. McCarthy was in no way responsible for what happened to the comic books. McCarthy was, was busy with his own dirty tactics which had nothing to do with something as unimportant as comic books. He was after a much bigger game. It was the temper of the times which led both to McCarthy and the problems that the comics were having. It wasn't... McCarthy didn't create the times. The times created McCarthy, Ron Pryor said. And they also created a bad time for comics. Uh, it was just the way people were then. And, uh, uh, they were, they were against everything. Just the general population. They were convinced that comics were going to do terrible things to their children, and they really believed that they so be worth it. Uh, but you can't blame McCarthy for that.
0: <laughs> right, but, uh, well,
2: I've always been, uh, well, other countries were concerned about comics. I believe a uh, figure I saw was a Canada banned crime comics in 1948. They
1: they might have banned them, but they were buying my plates and publishing them right up through the end. They were just importing them. No, no, they weren't allowed to import them. What comic publishers did in those days is you sold your press plates. Comics was such a you know chintzy business that if you could sell your press plates for two three hundred dollars, you know this was a consideration. If you put out sixty comics a year like I did and you sold each one for three hundred dollars, that was eighteen grand, which was a lot of money in those days, extra for nothing. And so we did. We sold our press plates to Canada to a place called, as I recall, Superior. Who they were or what they were, I don't know. And they published them up there. Very shitty job. And you could still find them in conventions, and, uh, you know, people who are such specialists in EC comics that they want everything go after the Superior comic versions. Which were identical, except instead of saying EC, they probably said S. Right.
2: Uh, still, uh, there were, there had always been censorship in, in this country. That is, pornography was uh, sure. illegal uh, up until relatively recently. Still is technically, but uh, certainly before the 50s, if, uh, people could be held in the court for uh, publishing material would be fairly innocuous now. Yeah, but this was all
1: sex. Nobody was after violence in those days. But there was a group. There were groups after it, and as a result of this, uh, Dewey was governor of New York State in those days. And New York has always been the key state for legislation as New York goes, or at least then, so went the rest of them. There were many people trying to pass legislation year after year, banning crime and horror comics. Uh, and I remember, because I was in them, so I was damned interested, and every year, both houses of the New York Assembly would pass the law and what Governor Dewey would veto it as being unconstitutional. Which it would have been. Uh, finally, a law was passed, and Just for your information, as far as I know, it is still on the books. It is illegal in New York State to publish a crime or horror comic. (laughs) You can theoretically be be arrested and thrown in jail for doing it. I don't think the law would hold up if it went all the way to the Supreme Court. It certainly sounds unconstitutional. But I don't uh, plan to be the one who goes in jail and tests it. So, uh, just for your information, as far as I know, that law is still on the books. i never heard that it was repealed, but the only way it'll get repealed is if somebody tests it, and it becomes unconstitutional. I have a copy of it somewhere, but please don't ask me for it, because the Lord only knows where I have a So much for that. Yes. Uh, it seems that people
2: around the country were reacting very strongly to the violence and the horror they thought it wasn't good for their children, and in reading the press clippings that we've got a whole file full of uh, from that time... People like Dr. Wortham and and the rest of them seem to be unable to conceive of comic books as even deserving of the right uh, of the free press, that they didn't see comic books as anything but a product on the order of uh, spoiled meat. Dr. Dr. Wortham saw no artistic
1: expression of anything of that nature. That's true. He didn't. I I had, you know, a couple of tussles with Wortham where he was taking things out of context in front of the Senate subcommittee. And I'll tell you the truth, I was so nervous when I was up there, and I barely knew what I was doing. First of all, I've been up all night writing my introductory speech, which I wrote with Lyle Stewart. Actually, Lyle probably wrote more of it than I did, but I was with him writing it. And uh, when I got into the Senate Subcommittee hearings, I suddenly started my dexedrine wore off. Oh well, uh, no! And, and, I, and I, maybe you know better than I do because it's been so many years since I've taken it. But if you're if you're on something and all of a sudden it wears off, you know you're like, well, for the last half hour or so of my testimony they would just bat me around they, would, they were like whacking a corpse they didn't know it like a wet sponge a wet sponge and that's how I felt and, and I don't hardly even know what I was doing I just want to get the hell out of there but should have popped a nose. <laughs> I would have if I'd had it oh just shut up as well, a matter of fact I wanted to I was, it was after lunch I think that <laughs> I was going on and I, I started to feel it and I said to Lyle and to my the girl who I later married I said um, I'm starting to feel like I'm getting very tired and I want another Dexagreen. And they said, Oh, Jesus, don't take a Dexagreen, you don't know what you're doing. Well, they were dead wrong. It's because I didn't take the Dexagreen in in the condition I was in those days. Uh, Maybe today, if I took one, it would would give me too much of a high. But in those days, I was used to it and I needed it and, and I didn't have it. It was tough facing these guys. You know, you're up there all along and there's nine of them, and, and uh, like the guy that was kind of like a prosecuting attorney, and uh, it was rough answering all these questions, you know, everybody's looking at, like, you a freak, and a criminal, uh, and so on and so forth, but you asked a question, which brought that on, I forgot the question as usual.
2: Yeah, I just kind of comment, it was kind of ironic that Dr. Worthing would see comic books as oh. the spoiled meat when he himself was about the, about the ultimate uh, liberal uh, since uh, like like he had a free claim comparable for for blacks and uh, he himself had testified against censorship in nineteen twenty eight, the court case involving a band book and later he invented a news
1: magazine. Well, you got you gotta understand that really what Wortham was doing was he was trying to defend the kids. And as as did Clarence Darrow before him, and Clarence Darrow was a great man, a great defense attorney, uh, they felt that uh, rather than rather than attribute any bad act to the kid, they'll blame the kid's environment, and if the kid read a comic book, then obviously it wasn't the kid that did the bad thing, it's the comic book led him into the path of madness. And uh, and Wortham did that over and over and over, and he, of course cynically you could say, well, Wortham was making a good living testifying in trials with this line, and writing these books and everything else. But I I, I think the man was relatively that was sincere in what he did. Uh, it's just that when you're making a living at something, you've got to be very suspect of oh, what, what exactly was the motivation. Uh, he wasn't a pure scientist making these observations. He was a man who was making a living on this kind of point of view. But he went up there and he read out of uh, one of my shock stories and he started showing how we used the word spick. or well, if you remember the story, of course, we had the bad guys using the word spick in the story. And it wasn't, a, you know, to, to pull out a, out a contest and say that we we were using the word spick in a comic book as though we had done a bad thing. We, what we had done was a good thing. Uh, it was the kind of thing he was capable of. And I don't know whether he did it maliciously or out of stupidity, but I don't think he understood half of what he was talking about. There are a number of stories he quotes in his book, which he obviously misread.
2: I got like a story, and I think shots and Spence stories, where uh, during the parade, the blind man doesn't salute the flag and gets stomped because they don't know he's not blind. Yeah. Uh, worth a misread that didn't realize the point and thought that
1: that's F- precisely F- what he did, and uh, as I say, uh, he did that in front of the Senate Subcommittee too. And it's very hard. It's very hard to defend your point of view when you don't have the material to, you know, to argue back with. And I didn't have that story with me. Still, you took exception to that. Yeah. Huh? I took exception. Day. I definitely took exception to it, but I don't think it did any good. Uh, you know, these things are. Uh, that committee was there to hang the comic publishers, and I was one of the first mm-hmm. comic publishers to go. I had requested to appear. So before they started subpoenaing people, although actually they subpoenaed me, uh, and perhaps they would have subpoenaed me anyway, but having asked to appear, at least I didn't go up there feeling I was being dragged up. I thought I was just being given the chance that I had asked for. Them. So I at least went up there a little less nervous than I would have been.
0: Dwight um, well, mentioned... Uh,
1: Did you put the song? Yes, yeah. the song.
0: Uh, the times that uh, provoked the Senate subcommittee hearings and so on. Could you go into that a little more? Uh, what do you think actually caused such a furor at the time?
1: Well, there were a lot of parent groups. The Catholic Church was incensed at that point. Uh, there, there were some Protestant groups. Uh, and the idea just got around and appealed to everybody that uh, that the problems they were having with kids came from comic books. They can understand. I mean, after all... Uh, Kids all of a sudden, uh, after being relatively well-behaved, maybe are starting to misbehave. The people in the 50s didn't begin to know what was coming in the 60s and 70s, <laughs> but at the time they may have been upset by, you know, what they thought was dreadful behavior. And I guess they're all looking around at who the first scapegoat, like everybody else in this world. Nobody wants to be blamed for anything, so they, they pick on somebody. And I guess... Uh, It just appealed to a lot of parents and uh, parent-type people and teachers uh, to blame the comics for these problems that were coming up. And so they did. And all kinds of legislation was being prepared in various states, uh, trying to ban comics and so on and so forth. And uh, as I say, I think it was just part of the general times when everybody was blaming everybody for something. uh, Do
0: you think that there was any legitimate concern, or was it essentially
1: witch-hunt? Type of situation. Oh, sure, it was legitimate. Well, all witch hunts start out legitimate, and then they get they get nutty. Uh, it ended up a little bit of a witch hunt, I guess, but not as bad as it could have been. I never got lynched, although a perfectly respectable columnist named Leonard Lyons, who you probably don't remember, but he died some time ago, uh, I'll never forget. Yeah, I can't take any calls on a conference. I for Fiddle to go. No. Uh, what was that? Leonard Wein. Oh, this guy actually came out and said in his column that comic, these horror comic publishers should be lynched. <laughs> I thought that would pretty to punish his rented A respectable columnist. <laughs> I never quite I sure gave him that. But since he ultimately died, there's nothing left to worry about. He got his. He got his. So. <laughs> um, did I answer your question? Uh, well, How
2: I was, I was like, just thinking the, the, to
1: the parents in uh, some some other part of the
2: country, if you're these. Were cheap, shoddy-looking publications that are published almost anonymously, and their kids like them, and the parents look through, and can't understand what the kids see in them.
1: And, uh, well, I don't know where this idea came that these things were published anonymously. I, I've never seen a comic book yet that didn't have the name of the publisher uh, and the address. Uh, this idea seems to get around that uh, in fact, some of the laws require that the, the address be included. Well, it's always been included. I never saw a comic book that didn't have an address in it. See porn stuff in those days that didn't, of course, because it was illegal. But, uh, DC, you know, you could always find out what DC's address was, or Marvel's address, or our address. I, I don't know what that uh, business got around for, but it did. It was around. Uh, and I can't believe that any of these parents didn't grow up with comic books anyway. I mean, comic books have been around since 33. It was the kind of comic books that were worrying it. And, uh, as I say, I'm sure the the problem was fanned by people who were fanning it for one reason or another. But uh, I'm sure the average parent was legitimately concerned that uh, these terrible things were going to ruin their kids. I got a uh, the first time I ever heard from Russ Cochran. What I don't know, he wrote me a letter. and said, "Just thought you'd like to know what happened to the members of Fanatic Chapter so and so." There were five of us, and uh, I'm a I'm a, uh, a PhD in physics, head of the physics department at Drake University, and my friend is an attorney, and this one is a doctor, and this one is something else, and this was something else. And that's what happened to the five members of this thing, which you ruined and, uh, you know, trapped up our minds <laughs> so many years ago. <laughs> and from this, I struck up a conversation or, a, you know, friendship, which ended up with these books.
0: What, what you should have done was write you and say that this one was a rapist and this one was a murderer. <laughs>
1: Uh, you'd be surprised how many letters I get like that if people write in and say uh, uh, I just got a wonderful book from a wonderful artist up in New Hampshire who came all the way down for the EC convention, I didn't know who he was although my girlfriend knew him well he's a famous reading card artist I forget his name and, uh, and he wrote in there he says, just thought you'd like to see how you damaged my brain and made me grow up unsuccessful, and this guy's a big successful artist
0: Okay. I want to ask a couple more questions about the subcommittee hearing. Uh, in the hearing, uh, they seemed to catch you on a contradiction. I thought you might expand upon here, and that is that at one point you said that uh, you didn't believe that comics could really influence the kids to uh, you know to perform any of the acts that you uh, you drew. They tried
1: to catch me on inconsistency,
0: the yeah. but was, then later you said, of course. Easily. that... That, that, uh, you did publish the, uh, what you called the preachies, the, uh, the anti-racist and so well, on.
1: Well, if you read my testimony carefully, I fortunately caught that coming just in right. time. Uh, and what I said, as I recall, was that our readers can tell when we're trying to make a point. Um, again, paraphrasing, that's right. a long time ago, almost 30 years. And uh, they can tell when we're trying to make a point, and we signal it, and, uh, and therefore they know that we're trying to teach them something, and so on and so forth. But uh, normally they know we're just trying to entertain them. And that's basically what I said. And he would have nailed me good if I hadn't said. again despite the fact that I had no Dexadrine, I out out was <laughs> right. Right.
0: Um, well, what of the argument that that everything has a message, one way or the other? Everything's propaganda for something, whether it's subversive or it maintains the status quo. It's a good argument. <laughs> <laughs> Would you have liked it if you used it? No, I <laughs> didn't think of it. <laughs> but you obviously don't concur with that.
1: Oh, well, I concur in a way, and I, but, you know, it's an oversimplification. The EC stories basically were designed to entertain, just as mad. It was basically designed to entertain. We, we try in mad to get a message across occasionally. And, you know, we're still doing it. We're, we occasionally try to get the message across that hard drugs are not good for you. That hard liquor in excess is not good for you, that smoking is very bad for you, uh, that you shouldn't believe everything you read in the advertisements, you shouldn't believe everything you hear on television, and so on and so forth. But that is not our primary purpose. Our primary purpose is to make you laugh. Yes? <laughs> <laughs> well, now check out. All right.
0: <laughs> there, was, there was a great story you once told that sort of pointed out. Pointed up the uh, the ludicrousness of uh, criticizing your horror comics, and that was about a uh, I think a distributor who got upset about uh, a story Mad about a butcher's uh, oh, kid wanted. Yeah,
1: well, eat? I was that was my friends the wholesalers, right? They uh, they had a an East Coast we um, call it one, a convention, which they do every year, and at that convention. Uh, Somehow, this became the topic of, well, I started it, I think that was Mad 5, and we had done a, uh, Kurtzman was sick with Jonas, and Felstein and I, and everybody was trying to help him get the book out, and we wrote a, a lampoon, tongue-in-cheek, um, uh, biography of me. we have done legitimate biographies on everybody else, so we did this thing, and this was supposed to, uh, you know, be funny, <coughs> and... But also, we were we were putting a zinger in there against one of the comic publishers, uh, who shall be nameless. And uh, so, I was saying that I'm a pornographer, and uh, this let me out. And these wholesalers, uh, who I didn't think would catch on, got it, and uh, were very angry, because they were very friendly with this publisher. Uh, that started the problem. The second thing was that face-to-face with this was the first page of Outer Sanctum. And You know, crazy Bill Elder, who puts all his junk and all his stuff back in those days. And he had something like fat errand boy wanted. Now, of course, as any horror person would know, what would a ghoul want a fat errand boy for? It would be to eat him. <laughs> but not these wholesalers. They had something much worse in mind. They had a sexual perversion in mind. Oh, uh... And they accused us of putting this thing in there, meaning that uh, they wanted a fat errand boy to screw or whatever you do with fat errand Boy. <laughs> And uh, and it almost put us out of business. It was another one of these insane things. Uh, the combination of that biography and page one of Outer Sanctum uh, it was more than these old-style wholesalers could uh, could absorb. And, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that couldn't happen today, but it happened then. It was back in 53.
0: You, you really seemed at the mercy of the capricious interpretations of these wholesalers.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There were the, there were the something like eight 900 wholesalers and you had to go through them to get to the 100,000 news was There was no other way. And uh, and they were in groups, you know, groups of you know, the East Coast group and the West Coast group and the Middle Coast and the South. And if you get a group of these guys mad at you, you, you know, you lose a fourth year distribution. And, uh, you know, from each section. So uh, it was a big problem.
2: Okay, have we pretty much exhausted BC and the... Uh... I wanted
1: to. Well, you got all the Kurtzman <laughs> stuff that I'd like to get into before <laughs> okay. you leave EC, which shouldn't take long.
0: I was just thinking that uh, no matter how ghastly uh, <laughs> the EC stories were, the horror stories, it seemed that uh, they, they uh, tended to twist things around. Like that editorial that you wrote, the one uh, where you said anybody who hates comics uh, essentially is oh, a communist. Well. That, that was a joke,
1: right? Uh, it was supposed to be a joke. It backfired. It backfired. Uh, The subcommittee grabbed that uh, one. The subcommittee grabbed that one, and by that time, I was so tired that I said I was serious. I just couldn't face getting into trying to explain to this group that this is supposed to be uh, funny. Uh, And since it wasn't a good job anyway, uh, you know, it's I won't even find it easy to describe to you what happened, let alone a Senate subcommittee. But I had a very good friend who used to... One of the ways he amused himself, he'd go around if he would find somebody haranguing a crowd on the street, uh, and let's say he would size the guy up as a, as a right winger. He found that if he went over and said, you're a communist, the guy would be incensed. Because after all, he hates communists, and somebody's calling him a (laughs) communist, and it's the worst thing in the world you could call him, is a communist. So my, my friend had lots of fun. I'm surprised he lived to tell the tale, but that's what he did. And he used to tell me this story, you know, what he used to do. Well, somehow I took this thing, and I said, well, number one, everybody who is against my comics is a right-winger. If I call them a communist, they'll be furious. (laughs) Obviously. So I come up with this long, tortured, tedious, stupid thing that that Legman, who was quite left-wing, was against comics. So there, I says, well, if Legman is against comics and uh, <laughs> the, he's connected with the Daily Worker, then anybody who hates comics must be a communist. And I says, are you a red dupe? Yeah, yeah, red dupe. And poor old Davis, who probably never read it, drew it, you know, to his eternal dishonor. And uh, that was it. It was one of my dumber things. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah, a communist. <laughs> <In> a right winger, <laughs> but anyway.
0: were fascists
1: if there it was. Well, well yeah, I, don't, I don't know if anybody does it anymore. But in, in my yeah. day, uh, we used to do that. Right wingers would call left wingers communists, and left wingers would call right wingers fascists, and they were dead serious. <laughs> <laughs> we do it in
0: our office all the time.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, but I suspect you're kidding. <laughs> yeah. You know, for the most part. Yeah.
0: Okay, you wanted to. Oh, yeah, I want
1: to talk about Kurtzman, you know. Well, I just wanted to uh, clear up a few points. Okay. Um, but we're in your last article. Let's see. First, got to find them.
0: Otherwise, it was a good issue.
1: Damn good issue. It was a damn good interview, too. Most of which I, uh, I loved and concur with. Let's see. I know Panic had at least one very major problem with censorship, the Santa Claus story, and I was wondering whether mad while it was a comic book had any such conflicts. And I just wanted to point out that the trouble we had with the Santa Claus story was Bill Elder. He had put on the sleigh of Santa Claus, just divorced. Now, how do a bunch of iconoclastic atheist bastards like us know that Santa Claus is a saint <laughs> and that he can't be divorced and that this is going to offend Boston. (laughs) So that's how that happened. Right. Uh, Now Harvey, this was a a thing between Harvey and I many times. He, as he says here, he feels that the comic business had brought censorship down on its head because of the kind of thing the horror comics were doing, and he thought they were evil, and he thought they'd turn sick, and so on and so forth. But what Harvey never could, could grasp then, and still doesn't, is the only reason there were his war books and the only reason there was a mad was from the money we made on the horror books and it doesn't seem fair and it didn't then it still doesn't that uh, you know harvey has these bad feelings toward the very magazines whatever he may have thought of them which provided the money that he published on because his books didn't make the money then Then we get into the fun of how mad started. Ah. And Harvey says, ever since mad started, I've heard 20 stories about who's responsible. And to hear it, I had uh, that I had very little to do with it. But as I remember it, I became desperate to do a quick comic. I wasn't making any money with the war books. There was too much research and laying out an authenticity and so on and so forth. Now, this is true, except who had the idea? And uh, Bill called Jack. And uh, he says he got tired, and he he went to the hospital with yellow jaundice, and it was in the hospital that he thought of Mad. Now I can I can demonstrate very easily, and I will at the end of this that at the time Harvey went in the hospital with yellow jaundice, Mad Five was just being published. <laughs> Therefore, he could not possibly have thought of Mad while he was in the hospital with yellow jaundice. That's,
0: He's that's probably a, just thinking about Mad.
1: No there was sixth issue No He says uh, So I proposed The format MAD This is as a result Of uh, Right Now I, I, I say I'll come and I'll show you This business uh, Then he says uh, Something was in the air With the first issues. We started getting letters We got an avalanche of mail MAD lost money For three issues Harvey either Didn't know it Or was forgotten but it, MAD was a loser Until Super Duper Man Came out That's That's what changed Thanks. it
0: how uh, how far into the run was that? What do you mean? Well,
1: uh, farther than three issues uh, into after, after three issues, man, then we can But it was it was a loser for three issues. Lots lots of comic book publishers will put an issue out, a comic book out one or two issues, and if it loses money, you drop it. Right. We never did that because we like if we like something, you know, we we run it as a loser, and we did for a long time with the science fiction. Um, and then uh, the business of, uh, well, the other thing is, who thought of the word mad? And uh, and Harvey, of course, thinks that he did. But I can demonstrate to you that uh, in the old horror comics, when Al and I would write the letter pages, we referred to our magazines as E.C.'s Mad Mags. And I will show you that uh, at least three issues back in fifty. Where well, this was true, and of course Mad didn't even come along until '52. Uh, what really happened was we decided to do, for reasons I've explained, a humor magazine. Right. Johnny Craig, Al Feldstein, Harvey, and myself sat around. We said we're going to do a humor magazine, and the title proposed by Feldstein was E.C.'s Mad Mag. It was a title we've been using right along. Uh, Johnny Craig came up with the side strip, Humor in the Jugular Vein, and then Harvey, in a stroke of genius, either then or later, took off the EC's Mad Mag and just made him mad. it Mad, which is a brilliant title, and that Harvey did do. But he didn't just sit down and think up the title Mad, he got the title Mad from EC's Mad Mag.
0: Right.
1: Panic. Now this is another Problem between Harvey and I over all these years Harvey says panic was another sore point Gaines by some convoluted reason Decided to double the profit of MAD By doing a Feldstein version of MAD And he just plundered all of my techniques and artists For this there was a real conflict of interest Sometimes Harvey loses sight of the fact That this was my business That I'm publishing these magazines That one of my magazines is MAD that I've got a lot of other magazines making more or less profit, some of them none. And what's so immoral about me putting out another magazine imitating my own magazine? You see, Harvey could never realize that Mad was mine. He thought it was his. <laughs> and that was the basic problem it <laughs> To me, Mad was one of the EC Comics. If we put out The Vault of Horror and it's successful, what's wrong with <laughs> putting out Tales from the Crypt? If we put out Mad and it's successful, what's wrong with putting out... All the time we put out panic, Harvey felt we were competing with him. And I used to say, Harvey, we're not competing with you. We're all one company. (laughs) The money comes from everywhere and it goes into a pot. And from this pot we publish, why am I competing? And that's just something that Harvey could never understand. He felt that it's separate. What he does shouldn't be compared. The fact that 30 to 70 other people were imitating men Martin Goodman had a half a dozen. You know, there were 70 issues, I understand. Uh My printer once counted them up, because he had a... He used to keep a list of all the comics published. And he told me there were 70. I think he's wrong, but there were certainly 30, 40, or 50 imitations of mad. You know, eek, eek ugh. uh ugh. Turn blue was Shelley Bayer's... Uh, I can't remember them all. Crazy, crack, nutty, silly, whoppy, cappy. <laughs> and we got all these imitations of men. That's okay, but if I put out Planet, it's tomorrow. Morrow. <laughs> <laughs> He's very uh, possessive about though? Very possessive. Which is okay, except that, you know, not so possessive that his own publisher isn't allowed to put out another one. If I'd been wanting a good one, I would have put out 30. You know? <laughs> yeah,
2: we're putting them out bimonthly
0: uh, on all months.
1: Panic was always a bi-monthly. Mad became monthly when Harvey dropped his war The But
0: Panic never did that, well.
1: No, it was never as good a magazine uh, in, in the sense that Kurtzman fans feel. Uh, it was never as good a title, uh, and yet there are people who are not uh, into the Kurtzman mystique who think that Panic was better than Mad in some ways. Not a lot of them, but I've, I've met some that have to do. It depends. Uh, the other, only other thing I think I have to to argue with Harvey about is why he left, mm-hmm. and uh, he tells the story pretty close, uh, and we agree except uh, when he says that uh, that he came and uh, and asked me what I could offer as an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, now what happened here is that a long time before this came up, Harvey had come to me and said, "How would you how would you like to turn man into a slick magazine?" And I said I wouldn't like to turn into a slip magazine. I'm a comic publisher, I don't know anything about slip magazines, it's a whole different ball game, and I'm not interested. I won't I I'm a poet, comic publisher, that's all I know. And that was the end of it for six, eight, ten months, until he was offered this job with uh coronet of Pageant. Uh Pageant. He was offered a very good job with Pageant. And uh as I recall, he was going to be given a section of the book to do all by himself, and so on and so forth. And also uh, a good chunk of money, which was more than he was making And I countered this by pulling up this memory that he had wanted to make man a slick. And I said, Harvey, if you stay, I'll let you make man a slick. And Harvey stayed, made man a slick, and didn't even take as much money as he would have gotten at patch. Because Harvey was never money crazy. Uh... He could spend it <laughs> like a maniac, <laughs> but I mean, for himself, he was never, you know, demanding in that sense, and uh, so that's how that happened. Didn't he even offer to give money back to the magazine out of his own salary? Yes. Yes, once we were doing very badly, of course, and uh, I had gone bankrupt, you know, and money was very tight, and I think he was making 15000 at the time, which was pretty good money in those days, but nothing phenomenal. And he was spending all this money on artists and writers, and way beyond, you know, the craziness that led to him to get into trouble with Trump. And I said, Harvey, I, I can't afford it. I mean, you just can't keep spending money like this. It's you know, impossible. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll reduce my salary to 12500 so I'll have more money to spend for artists and writers. And he really did that. You know, very unusual. Uh, I mean, who, who would do that? But of course... It didn't help too much because $2,500 was a drop in the bucket compared to what he was spending. Especially spread gesture. over a year. Well, yeah. But that was the gesture. But see, Harvey and I, I was very fond of him, I, you know, from a friendship point of view. I used to go up there a lot, and one of my fondest memories is going to his house up in Mount Vernon, and he had a fireplace, which, of course, I never had, and we'd sit around the fire and uh, drink cherry kiazza and, and just chew the fat and have a wonderful time, and i you know, when I later had a fight with him, I missed those days because, uh, it was, it was fun. It was good friendship. Although we, well, all we did was argue because we never could see eye to eye on anything. But, uh, I, I, missed him as a friend when the problem came. Uh, I, I think that's probably all. Oh, then he says that, uh, he would have pushed and pushed for advertising if he'd stayed in there. And of course, uh, here we would have had a terrible battle, too, because as I've explained to you the way I feel about ads. And the few ads that uh, Matt did take at the beginning were mostly taken by Kurtzman when he was editor, it. And after he left, I did away with. I just want to show you, ah, uh, the what can we worry thing. Yeah, well, of course, Harvey and I have a whole different idea of where that came from. Harvey thinks that Alfred E. Newman is an example of iodine deficiency in a biology textbook. Which is very funny, except no one has ever seen this biology textbook, ever, (laughs) anywhere. It's just a rumor you heard. You made it up. Uh, no, sure, you'd make it up, but, uh, it came from somewhere. Uh, I have tracked down, because we were sued by two people who own copyrights on Alfred E. Newman, The Face. And, uh, uh, we, we took this up to the Supreme Court, uh, and won it. And we collected an awful lot of material on Alfred E. Newman when this happened. Uh, and Alfred e. Newman's earliest appearance, not with that name, was as a uh, an advertisement for a painless dentist in Topeka, Kansas. His name was Painless Woman. And uh, it was the face, or a similar face, not exactly. with It didn't hurt a bit, you know, it didn't hurt. So that's another one that Harvey and I always uh, argue about is where did it come from? course, <laughs> then the one last thing is, uh, he was talking about Trump, how we used an art director. We've never had an art director. And of course, our wonderful John Putnam here was our art director, whom Harvey got. And when Harvey left mad, John is the only person he didn't take with him, which, uh, which John always uh, felt badly about over the years, like, you know, he, he wasn't good enough for Harvey to take him along. uh, and john until his death last year was a brilliant art director for man. and, and uh, probably responsible for a lot of uh, success over the years let me just show you this stuff it so won't we'll take a bit of money and i'll get it off my get it off my mind i've said it you know let what am i looking for walter harrah 14 2 of tales 34. like an attorney bringing really books into the court <laughs> four four, a courtroom a Mad mag. right. Huh. The date August September fifty. Next issue. The Date October November fifty. Uh, this is
0: which magazine now? Vault
1: of. This is Vault We did in yeah, I mean, you know, just the find. Yeah, was looking. We did it all the time in our fundraising. That's how the gold effects referred to their uh, magazine. In this issue of my Mad Mag. Next issue. Hmm. <laughs> December, January, December fifty, January fifty one. Mad mad. Right. Huh? A little hard. Okay. much for Mad. Uh, Two Fisted tales, thirty four. Cover to red. Next July, August nineteen fifty three. Mad five is advertised, right? Right. The Betsy, written and drawn by Jack Davis, because Harvey wasn't there to write it. This, I think, was written and drawn by Wally Wood. Right, right. Because Harvey wasn't there to write it. I think that was written and drawn by Sever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this was written and drawn by George Evans. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the letter page, we say... Two the Tales, brilliant writer, artist, editor who generally masterminds the magic from cover to cover, suddenly developed a serious case of yellow jaundice and has quickly retired to a hospital bed. E.C. COVID War Division and was thrown into chaos, and so was over. So, he was in the hospital with jaundice when we published Mad 5. But I keep saying this in interviews that he thought of Mad while he was in the hospital with jaundice. I all wish right. my case. Okay.
0: <laughs> Okay,
2: Okay. Do you, think, do you think Mad could have continued as a color comic? Do you, do
1: you think that the, the mm-hmm. Slickhood slick was necessary? Glad you brought that up. A lot of people think that I changed Mad from a comic to a Slick to avoid the association. I think you can see why I changed Mad. It was to keep Person. It was a piece of luck because Mad could never have gone through the association. Panic had a hell of a job getting through the association. We had to emasculate it. Uh, Harvey would have gone out of his mind. I don't think there's any way he could have worked with those people over there, and they would have wrecked the book. But that is not why I did it. It was just a lucky result of what I did. So I don't think so.
2: I see.
1: And Matt has been successful over the years, but
2: I noticed you haven't really tinkered much with the basic format. And, uh, a friend of mine had a copy of Mad from 62, and it doesn't seem like the magazine has really
1: changed very much in mm-hmm. overall appearance. That is true. Uh, and the only thing I can say is, if you noticed, Cuddy Sark's ad lately for their Scotch—it's the same ad they've been running for forty years. It's the Windjammer. All <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah. Somebody once said, "Why do you do this? Why don't you do that?" And they said, "Why? We're selling scotch." <laughs> That's what I say. I'm selling that. As long as why tinker with it? Uh, I think it's a good format. Uh, it's basically the format that Christmas started. Uh, Al has modernized it a little bit, added a lot of artists that weren't here when Harvey was, a lot of writers, uh, but it's true, it hasn't changed much since 62, it hasn't changed much since 58. Yeah, do you feel any uh, uh, threats from the National Lampoon? Any competition there? Well, there's no question the Lampoon took away readers. Uh, Mad before the Lampoon, Mad had a readership which was predominantly teenage and went into college. Uh, Mad still has a readership, which is predominantly teenage, but now a lot of them go into the Lampoon. Um, so the Lampoon has taken away readers. On the other hand, the Lampoon has been singularly unsuccessful in the last few years. Uh, their sales are very bad. So in Mad's, I mean, there's a there's a recession in, in the, the industry, and all magazines, practically except for the girly magazines, are doing poorly. Paperback books, are, uh, except for the occasional Buffalo bestseller are going poorly. Uh, publishers generally are going poorly, and some of them are losing their shirts. Uh, Man is not losing their shirt. I suspect that Lampoon may be, uh, except that Lampoon had that successful movie that helped it over the bad hump, which we didn't. Uh, so that's, that's to their credit that they got a good movie. Uh, but the actual magazine is selling... Uh, Oh, as far as I can make out, it's selling about 400,000 copies, which is really you know, maybe, maybe less. Of course, they have an income from advertising, but you see, this is a trap you get in. When you start taking advertising and your sales fall, you have to rebate all the advertisers. Yeah. Now, when you, let's say you, you get a lot of ads and you put out a very slick package on coded stock and you're printing a million copies, and instead of selling 800,000, you suddenly find yourself selling 400,000. Uh, But of course, you just as much to print that slick package on that slick uh, paper, only you're not getting the advertising money that you got before because you're only selling 400,000. And This is a a made up example, uh, rather a little extreme. Uh, You're in bad trouble. That's how Look folded, that's how Life folded, you know Life. Uh, A lot of magazines over the years have gotten into that thing But gee, how could Look fold when they're selling three and a half, three and a half million copies? Because they're losing money at three and a half million copies. That's how they bought it, you know. Uh, it doesn't matter what you sell it. If you lose money, you lose money. And uh, it's, uh, publishing is a rough industry right now. But the, the Lampoon definitely hurt us. Cracked uh, hurt us in the other direction. Uh, mm. They got the youngsters. Uh, the, the eight, nine, ten-year-olds who, who... The precocious ones are reading mad anyway. But the non-precocious ten-year-olds... Uh, who might try mad and find it a little difficult but still try it may now read crack. So we're kinda caught and our horizons are being pushed yeah. in. Yeah. Captain. John. Uh, 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 hey, I'm sorry. Well, I was wondering if you'd seen Crazy. Marvel's
2: crazy. Not largely. Which seems like mad seems like Mad imagination. We
1: heard they went out of business, is that true? No. No, no afraid not. Oh, is it sick? The sick one? that might be like sitting this, right out yeah wasn't Charlton publishing that uh-huh. I don't know Paul Lakin was an old ex-Mad writer, was writing it and it uh, seemed like somebody said Paul was looking for work so
0: I, <laughs> I uh, John Severin does an awful lot of work for crack what is He's your relas-
1: old... relationship with him John Severin used to work for Mad and he and Harvey had a falling out long middle. this was back around 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th this year I don't know what it was and uh and at that point, he went, I think, to Cracked. And uh, he's very happy at Cracked. He, uh, hmm. The rates aren't, of course, anything like our rates, but he gets a lot of work there. I guess he turns out a lot of work, and I guess he makes a good living.
0: Uh, I can't understand why he's doing all that schlocky stuff for him, no. It's, really
1: it's a living. Well, you gotta got make a living.
0: Right, right. Uh, can I ask you what the rates are at MAD, approximately? Yeah.
1: These days? Uh, with a couple of exceptions our old-timers are getting 490 a page, script, 490 a page off. The rates go up every year. They just went up from 460 to 490.
0: Well, one interesting thing that you've you you you've done and no other comic publisher has done is that you've made the r- rates for writing the same as rate for art. Oh, a long time ago. Right.
1: I now, can you done... talk about
0: the philosophy behind oh, that? Oh,
1: sure. That's one of my favorite subjects. I forgot about it. I learned it from Jack Benny. I once read an article about Jack Benny. And Jack Benny... Paid his writers very, very well. Much better than anyone else in radio at that time. Whatever it was, I have no idea, but it was very good. And he said, listen, man, I'm my writers. Without my writers, I'm a schlemiel. Says so the whole program is based on my writers. Of course I paid them a lot of money. They're worth a lot of money. And I had never forgot that. That was long before I was at the publisher. And when I got into comics and realized that the, the, in my day, the prevailing rate for script was six bucks a page. I never paid that little, but that's what it was. And art was about 25 at the time. I said, this is craziness. The artist has nothing to draw if he's got no script, you know? And a long time ago, I, I said, I'm bringing it up to parody as soon as I could. And so I started way back uh, in Harvey's day. I had already gotten script to 25 and art to 75. And that was all basic. Uh, and then after Harvey left, I started working it up until a long, long time ago I had stripped up the art. And absolutely that's the way it should be. No question about it. Writers, uh, writers are God's creatures. You realize the way well, you guys are writers, so you probably realize, but without the writer, you have no theater, you have no television, you have no radio, you have no movies, you have no books, you have no magazines, you have nothing. But the only thing you've got is the roller derby, because somebody can write that one very easily. But even then, they, I think they use the writer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to decide how who <laughs> won what and in, in what glamorous way. Uh, except for sports, there isn't a thing that doesn't depend on the writer in the entertainment field. He mm-hmm. is he's what it is. So, sure, I we love our writers. They're the greatest. Yeah. We have a lot of writer artists. They can play double. Right.